like to welcome everyone to the 53rd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have the second of our discussions with the class of 2020. You can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls recorded as podcasts on soundcloud.com. And you can keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and topics. On Thursday, we will have a public health update with Esther Chernak from Drexel University. And I'll also speak with disaster research polymath, Tricia Wachtendorf, the co-director of the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. As of today, May 27th, 2020, there are 5,647,961 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 5,550,399 cases yesterday. 1,692,786 of those are in the United States up from 1,672,714 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 99,783 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19, up from 98,636 deaths reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story every day, and I'd like to continue that now. Hecky Powell, Rib King and Evanston icon has died at 71. This is an obituary that appeared on May 22nd in the Chicago Sun-Times by Maureen O'Donnell. Evanston entrepreneur and civic booster, Hecky Powell, who started a mini empire with an acclaimed rib restaurant where many teenagers landed their first jobs, died at 71 after being diagnosed with the coronavirus. The motto of Hecky's barbecue was, it's the sauce. His smiling image and the slogan appeared on the bottles of his secret sauce that he sold in stores and shipped around the world. Mr. Powell made thousands of pounds of ribs a week and provided catering for events, including Chicago Bears and Northwestern Wildcat Games. When he opened his restaurant in 1983, he called on Leon Finney Sr., one of Chicago's most renowned pitmasters for advice. He told me to come down and talk to him, Mr. Powell said in a 2008 Chicago Sun-Times interview. He taught me how to buy ribs, when to buy them, how to store them. He was just incredible. With Hecky passing away, a part of Evanston passes away, said Evanston Mayor Steve Haggerty, who credited Mr. Powell with educating him on the history of the suburb when he sought his political support. Mr. Powell started the Forrest E. Powell Foundation, named for his father, which bestowed music scholarships and vocational grants to students. There's a lot of kids who don't have the desire or ability to go to college. Heck, he supported the youth, said his sister, Debbie. He'd been diagnosed with the coronavirus days earlier, according to her and another sister, Patsy Powell. Heck, he's such an icon, said former Evanston alderman, Dolores Holmes. He was a role model, father figure, and mentor to many young people. Young Hecky went to Evanston Township High School and Northeastern Illinois University. Before founding his restaurant, he was executive director of a community development group, Neighbors at Work. When he opened Heckey's 37 years ago, he later said he had only $100 in the register. Mr. Powell supported generations of kids' sports teams, 
and served on the Evanston Skokie School District 65 Elementary School Board. He also was president of the Evanston branch of the NAACP and had an Evanston street named in his honor. In 1996, he and then Mayor Lorraine Morton had made a bet that Northwestern would best the University of Southern California in the Rose Bowl. When the Wildcats lost, Mr. Powell cooked ribs and chicken for the Los Angeles City Council. His mother, Verna, who worked at this restaurant at Emerson Street and Green Bay Road was from New Orleans, according to Debbie Powell. Her Creole recipes tantalized customers and inspired his seasonings. In addition to his barbecue sauce, he sold and shipped Hecky's Spice Packs. His menu, which drew VIPs, including Bear defensive tackle William the Fridge Perry, offered tasty greens, sweet potato fries, catfish, macaroni and cheese, barbecued turkey drumsticks and hot links. When some neighborhood residents complained in 1988 about the strong barbecue smell near his restaurant, Mr. Powell got a loan for a smoke scrubber and vowed he would distribute bags to customers that said, we love Hecky's barbecue smoke, as for the hot air at City Hall, bag it. Explaining his rib methodology, he told the Sun-Times it went like this. Apply a dry rub based on his mother's secret recipe and follow that with 24 to 48 hours of grilling in a smoker. Then he'd heat the sauce and slather it on. Hickey Powell had posed for a no mask, no sauce photo to help Evanston's efforts to combat the coronavirus. For a time, Mr. Powell also operated a Hickey's at Halstead and Division Streets on the north side of Chicago and another eatery at a North Shore location, Debbie Powell said. Years ago, Mr. Powell survived a bout of liver disease thanks to a living donor who gave him part of a liver. The pandemic has made grieving especially hard, Debbie Powell said. You can't go over and console and hug, she said. You have to grieve differently. His death underscores the scourge of the coronavirus, Haggerty said. If people didn't think the pandemic was real, they got a rude awakening. As word circulated, Mr. Powell was ill, Haggerty said. Mr. Powell's family said Hecky's barbecue will be closed for the near future. Please continue to stay safe during this unprecedented time in recent human history, they said. This pandemic has hit home for our family and many others. jump into the conversation, and I'm very pleased to introduce my guests today. Apoorva Selvaraj is graduating from a five-year BS-MS biomedical engineering program at Drexel University this June. Through the program, she has served as co-op at Johnson & Johnson, GE Healthcare, and Pfizer. She's been heavily involved as a student at Drexel. She served on the Undergraduate Student Government Association through the past five years, and currently serves as the student body president at Drexel. She uses this role to elevate student voices and opinions to better the undergraduate experience. Olivia Van Buskirk is from Port Huron, Michigan and a recent graduate of Central Michigan University where she completed degrees in meteorology and geography. At Central Michigan, she was actively involved in the alternative breaks program that focused on engaging students in week long service experiences to learn more about various social justice issues. In this way, she found her passion for integrating meteorology and social science She's starting a master's degree in geography at the University of Oklahoma in the fall. Our third guest is Elizabeth Whiteside. Elizabeth is the valedictorian for the class of 2020 at Woodrow Wilson High School in Dallas, Texas. Her time in high school is spent deeply involved in academics and leadership, as well as the arts and athletics. In addition to serving with student council as class president for freshmen through junior years, Elizabeth participated in cross country, 
all four years of Woodrow Wilson musicals and served as an officer for the National Honor Society her senior year. In the fall, Elizabeth will be attending Emory University where she intends to study neuroscience and behavioral biology with further plans to attend the medical school. Olivia, Apurva, and Elizabeth, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for your patience today. My apologies for the technical glitch, but I really look forward to speaking with you today. I've really been looking forward to this conversation for a while. It's the second part of our discussion of the class of 2020. And I'd like to start the way I usually start these calls and just ask you um, how you're doing where you are so we can find out where you're calling from and how things are going there. Olivia, can we start with you? Yeah, so I'm calling from Port Huron, Michigan. It's about an hour north of Detroit, right on Lake Huron. So super amazing to be here in the summer. And I definitely am glad for the time to be home with my family right now. Um, I've been home for about a month from school. I was really lucky to be able to stay um, in my apartment off campus with my roommates. So I finished the semester um, and then moved home. So I've been here for about a month. <laughs> um, and it's definitely... There are good days, there are bad days. Um, my parents and I have a lot of different opinions, um, especially about our governor and like her decisions. So that can be a little challenging, but I'm trying to like look at it from a positive perspective of like, this is time I get to spend with my family before um, moving to Oklahoma in August, so. And what's the situation there in terms of uh, lockdown and people wearing masks? Yeah, so our governor, Gretchen Whitmer, just extended our um, stay-at-home order until June 12th, I think. Um, it's like three more weeks. Uh, you're supposed to wear masks when you go out in public, but a lot of people like don't. <laughs> um, and there were a lot of crowds, especially in northern Michigan, um, for Memorial Day because they just reopened um, the northern half of the Lower Peninsula and then the entire Upper Peninsula. Um, so people from southeastern and southwestern Michigan, where it's a little bit harder hit, we're going up to vacation for Memorial Day. So people are definitely not taking it as seriously as they probably could, <laughs> but I guess some action is better than no action. And the infection rate in Michigan, how's the trend? Um, it's going down. We had, we had a few days of like lower case numbers, but probably due to Memorial Day, I think our infection rate is like under one though. It's like, that's a positive sign. We just need more testing. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, where are you calling from and how's the situation there? I'm calling from Dallas, Texas, and right now it's been really strange to see the infection rates ticking upwards, but then also our there's kind of a clash between our city government and our state government and trying to figure out how to actually go about regulations and things like that. So our city has been trying to extend lockdown and make sure that we're staying at home and wearing masks and having all that required while our governor is trying to open things up. And so we're continuing to open things up, even though the numbers are increasing and there's been a steady uptick in coronavirus cases. That's a strange disjunction. It is. And when was your first, uh, your first day at home or your last day at school, should we say? I think the teens week in March, it was supposed to be our spring break. So we left on the, I think it was Friday was the 13th. And so we left that Friday. That was our last day at school and then had spring break. And by the week after that, we had been home for maybe going on two weeks. And now it's day 75 or 76 for us today, I think. Apurva, same question to you. 
Yeah, I'm calling from um, Brookfield, Wisconsin, just outside Milwaukee, the largest city in the state. Um, so interestingly, uh, we've had a clash with regards to a stay-at-home order from our governor, who was, was trying to extend it um, till the end of May. And actually, the Supreme Court of Wisconsin overturned that about a week, week and a half ago. Um, so things are opening up. There's still like some places that are decently um, following, trying to do social distancing guidelines and limiting number of people in restaurants or stores and um, using disposable um, menus, things like that. And uh, it's interesting, but I feel like in Wisconsin, it's very different than what I hear of my um, fellow peers out in Philly or in New York uh, that are much more quarantined and self-isolating um, compared to in Wisconsin. It feels like people don't take it as seriously. It's more like an individual um, commitment to quarantining or not. So Elizabeth, let me turn to you and get your, your perspective on what it was like to finish up the senior year online. I think that I was in an interesting position because I'm in the international baccalaureate program at my school. So rather than a lot of other seniors where they're having that whole last section of classes and finishing up, all of our exams got canceled. And so our final grades for our IB diploma that's being calculated off of our papers that we've written rather than the final exams and having multiple ways of calculating it. So we haven't had much work to finish up just because that got taken away so abruptly and we were kind of moving towards doing sort of review and things like that. And so it's been kind of strange to watch people that are struggling to have to deal with online classes and then feel kind of isolated from that because we've got only a few classes left and not really knowing what we even have to do to finish up. Did you, were you able to maintain contact with your teachers, with your principal, with counselors? How did, how did that go? We've had a lot of Zoom meetings there have been a few teachers of mine that have very strongly been out there trying to connect with us and have class with us. My English teacher especially had classes and check-ins every week. And even though we had our IB exam taken away for that class, he still wanted us to come check in with them and had us read a book all together so we could have some connection there. And uh, the administration at our school has sort of reached out to us, especially when trying to coordinate things for our graduation ceremony, which was all virtual. And so there's been some contact, but it's varied greatly by who's doing it and what it's for. You, I don't know if you know this or not about Dallas. Was Dallas as a district able to all go online completely? Because in Philadelphia, they were not able to do that, at least at first. It was a real challenge. I Yes, the Dallas School District has done really well with, like at the very beginning, they went out and sent hotspots out to all of the students who didn't have internet. And we're such a huge school district. So there's a lot of low income students and students who don't have access to the internet. And from very early on, they sent out Chromebooks for all the students and hotspots out to the locations that didn't have internet access. And we're really trying to bridge that gap between the people who had internet access and who didn't. And then there's also been food pickup for people who don't have steady access to groceries and things like that. So there's been a lot of outreach from the district in terms of making sure everyone's on an equal playing field, mm. but not necessarily in terms of ensuring that we're kind of having the best education we could be at just because it's been such a shock to the system. Olivia, what was that transition like to you online? Maybe you'd already been taking online classes, but presumably not all online. 
No. So I, very similarly to Elizabeth, um, we left for spring break and we were like, oh, okay, we'll be back in a week. And then I was in Alabama volunteering and we got an email and they were like, yeah, no, we don't have school next week. And then it was like that rest of the semester was online. Um, so in my program in meteorology, a lot of our classes require like specific software that the school has purchased that we like a student can't pay for because it's a lot of money. Um, and then in my geography classes, like similar things. Um, so it was like this very abrupt change to figuring out how to teach and learn um, without access to those things in some people's cases. Um, two of my professors, we had like synchronous learning still at our like same time, which like we had small class sizes. So it ended up like working out, but it's obviously not accessible for everyone. Um, and then one of my other classes, we kind of just like got assignments to do um, on our own, on our own time. Um, so it really varied in terms of like what classes you were in, what your professors wanted. Like I had friends um, who are sophomores and juniors who were getting like double and triple the amount of work that they usually were getting and like trying to figure that out while doing stuff online. Um, it was really difficult, especially in the beginning. Um, but also like I was a senior, so I kind of already had this mindset of like, we're done in three, like whatever, like three weeks by the time it was starting to get harder. Um, so it, it kind of just like didn't really matter because I knew like, oh, I'm going to grad school. Like this semester doesn't matter, which is like maybe a bad mindset to have, but <laughs> that's kind of how it felt. Well, I think that's a normal mindset to have, uh, particularly as you're finishing up and, and looking ahead. Um, but still what an abrupt transition to find as you're saying, you know, meteorology classes that might have um, really complicated software or lab experiences and you're having to translate those online. Yeah. Apoorva, same question to you. And I know, I mean, you're busy in the classroom, but you're very busy out of the classroom too. So what's this transition online meant for you? Yeah, it was, it was weird. So March 13th, I remember it was the day I came back to Wisconsin because I didn't have finals. I had finished my projects early. So I had like two weeks off in spring break and I came back and Luckily, I brought some clothes with me <laughs> because then we got an email that we were going to be taking finals virtually. Um, and then the entire next term um, remote, what was unique, Drexel is a quarter system. And so it starts up a whole new classwork for the next nine, 10 weeks. Um, and it was weird because I, as a senior um, and as an engineer, we all have design projects that have lasted the entire year. And it was supposed to be a capstone moment in the end. Um, we didn't get to finalize our prototype, uh, compete in the competition at school and things like that. I have lab classes. Um, lots of STEM majors are disrupted by that. Also design majors. I know a lot of friends. Um, and discussion-based classes, like some classes are great and they still elicit that. And others, it's harder to participate than you would if you were in person. Um, and get more out of that learning experience. And yeah, I am busy out of school, um, especially with student government. What also escalated a lot were so many gaps in um, the experiences of my peers and trying to elevate that voice and bring that to attention and making sure that, you know, with a new learning environment and we're also a co-op school and the opportunities there and all that disruption and trying to see and connect students to um, right outlets of communication. Olivia, you were presumably, maybe you did it, um, you had some preparations that you had to make to get ready to go to graduate school. Um, so how's that shaping up? 
Um, yeah, so I had just actually gone to Oklahoma like a week before spring break, very luckily. So like that trip was fine and I got to like see campus um, and I knew that that's like probably where I wanted to go. Um, but in the time since then, I was supposed to be moving to Norman in July to work on a stakeholder engagement workshop and that has been postponed to next year. Um, and that workshop is kind of serving as the foundation of my master's research. Um, so luckily my advisor is still paying me and I start next week, but it's just completely different. And like the work that I'm going to be doing is completely changed. Um, and I'll be spending the whole like next year really thinking about like how to build better relationships with these people that we work with. But like, I'm still don't even know if I'm moving to Oklahoma in August mm. or like what school is going to look like. So there's a lot of uncertainty with that. For people who may not be familiar, it's it's the best meteorology program in the United States, and it's where you know the sort of the nerve center of meteorology, um, and the the National Weather Center is there, and it's also where students go to get acculturated into being at the uh, really in the center of the action of severe weather. So, I, I guess I wish you a lot of severe weather there in Michigan this summer. I'm not quite sure. Uh, certainly, it would be quite different if you were in Oklahoma, but um, yeah. Maybe you'll get a tornadoes. you'll get a tornado season <laughs> next spring. Um, Elizabeth, uh, question to you: You were uh, did you give a, a valedictory speech? You, you, I did. You, you did. Okay, so you had a, an online graduation. Yes. Okay, I won't ask you to give us the whole speech here, but <laughs> presumably, also, you may not want to say if you had started the speech preparing it before. Um, you were asked to do it online, but walk us through a little bit about this process of getting ready for one thing, that is to be on a stage with a, in a big hall delivering this speech and to find yourself delivering it in a very different way. It was interesting. So I was actually able to start preparing for my speech with having the pandemic happen, able to start preparing for that earlier because our grades ended up this semester didn't count towards GPA, so our rank from last or from the last semester counted towards that was our final rank. And so once that was announced, I was able to actually start preparing because I hadn't had the option to prepare yet, just because we weren't sure. I didn't want to start preparing and then have ranking shift, and just didn't want to overshoot my boundaries there. But it was strange because I had sort of a speech in my head that I was thinking about giving and. It obviously didn't involve much of anything about pandemic and then this happened and I felt like I totally had to shift towards talking about strengthening connections between students and discussing how much this has impacted our community and sort of what we can do to stay strong as a community because that's such a big thing with our school and our community is there's so much history there and there's a lot of traditions. Our school was built in 1928. So we've been around a very long time, had a lot, have a lot of longstanding traditions. So I thought it was interesting and important to discuss how we could kind of keep that going and continue to have that same feeling of community involvement while still maintaining that social distance and safety. Those are not themes you were necessarily expecting to hit on. Not at all. No. Oh, they would have been very strange to get it to give a valedictory speech at this time and act as if COVID-19 wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. At first I didn't really want to discuss it because I was, I was frustrated with the fact that everything got taken away and we didn't get to have the things that we were initially going to have and have that 
big ceremony and all the things like that. But I felt like it was important just as it is with a lot of things now to recognize the disappointment there and understand that we can't do that, but then move forward with, I know that I need to do it this way, even if I want to do it somewhere else. And so I ended up being able to go up to the school and film my speech in the auditorium with Mm. just the film teacher there. So that was a good way to kind of have some closure there with being able to have a speech recorded there, but it was still very drastically different from what was expected. Right, so set the scene for us. So cap and gown, you go in Mm -hmm. to the auditorium, empty stage, you go to a podium and you deliver a speech? Yes, so we've got our very old auditorium. It's got our motto like scroll across the top of the stage and we've got this gigantic podium that's used for a lot of things in our class. The podium or the like pep rallies have that podium, everything's there. And I sat there, stood there and gave my speech to a basically empty auditorium with just the camera pointed there and a few of the other people that were there to record speeches. There was three other girls with me there to record their own speeches for the ceremonies scattered around. And it was very strange to be up at this school seeing all of the empty hallways and classrooms and not be able to finish really. And no feedback or hopefully people clap for you at the end, but it's different to hear four people versus, I don't know how many students yes, in here, but I mean, was, hundreds is what mm-hmm. you would expect. Yeah. Our graduating class has around 415 students, I think. Mm-hmm. So it was very different from having maybe, you know, 4,000 to 6,000 parents and family members in a giant, stadium versus just the five of us in the auditorium and I think that part of this is I've been kind of joking about after having the ceremony last Saturday was that I got to watch myself give my speech which is a very strange thing yeah. and it was it was a very interesting experience well maybe Afurva may be taking notes it, it, if memory serves USGA presidents also give a speech at graduation yeah yeah, at the university-wide, that's correct. So how's the process going? Have you gone through a similar back and forth like Elizabeth's? You started yeah. in one direction and moved a different one? Well, I mean, I tried not to think about it too much through the year, but I knew of like the opportunity that you get to, if you're a senior assistant body president, you get to give that speech. And like um, after, by the, the, you know, I think probably by February, March, I had thought about it a little bit more in anticipation of being able to be at like Citizens Bank Park in front of thousands of people you know you have 2,000 3,000 students and then additional thousands of families and it being able to be up on the stage give a speech um, and it's different and then well what was interesting about Drexel is there was some commitment to also pushing our June celebration our in-person commencement to September um, in late fall, and there was a lot of hope. But just recently, actually on Friday, I think the university decided that they won't commit to that anymore because they don't know about the safety guidelines and because it's just a massive number of individuals that would want to be there. And so that really, I think, cut the cord on the dream. Um, but I was still reached out to because they're doing a virtual celebration uh, June in the middle of June when the original dates would have been for the school graduation and the university-wide. And I will be giving some remarks. I've started to think about that actually this week. Um, And similarly, like Elizabeth, thinking about, you know, it would have been something that was really meaningful, but really more joyful than anything. And there's a somberness about 
what you can say now because of the, the circumstances. So try and think, think of that a lot with really thinking about being in the moment um, and taking taking uh, like time to revel in whatever is in the moment. And then also the sense of community and how much, how many people rally around you and how you contribute to that. So similar, similar tones. At a time in, in which obviously we have a staggering death toll in the United States and many people sick who've recovered, but I mean, and the economy, I mean, we're, we're undergoing a society-wide disaster right now and we're in the middle of it. And I've worried a lot that that also overshadows um, these joyful moments mm -hmm. and that it's hard to talk about it because nobody wants to be the person who says, yeah, but I was graduating from high school. Like it's a big deal, you know, mm -hmm. it happens once. I'm graduating from college, starting a new graduate program. Um, could you, could each of you talk a little bit about, I mean, Elizabeth, you said a little bit of, of, to start there about kind of that struggle for yourself, like to make sense of this particular moment. It's a rite of passage, but also with this big thing hanging over it. A perfect, would you mind just, if you could share any of your reflections about that? Yeah, actually it's, <laughs> it's an argument I'm still having with the university administration um, because I, I agree that we have to be safe and we have to, already we've come so far in, you know, taking steps and precautions to keep our community safe and the people safe. But it's such a valuable moment because it's the end of an era and the introduction into public life. And the, like really what, as much as the memories that you've collected through your four or five years in college, I speak to my college experience, um, the final moments are what you will really remember. I think about that in high school too, like my graduation, the last few months of senior year were, are what really like strike me and what I remember when I look back. And it's, it's really hard because every other year has gotten that time we grinded forever. Um, and it's always been because it's worth it because it's, for the graduation but at the same time like i've had to be real with myself and my peers and be like well you know it's not that our degrees are going away it's not that the memories that we've collected up until this point are going away it's it's just that final marker isn't there and the hope i'm still still arguing <laughs> is to have some kind of in-person component where it's not just seeing your peers in the community that supported you your faculty your teachers, your family, your friends, um, because it's for them too. My parents came, we came to the United States when I was six and they stayed because of the education system. Um, I loved it when I came in when I was six years old and also the prospects of being at an American institution is much higher than when you're as an international student. And so we stayed here for whatever and I finally come to that point and I'm the first, I'm the eldest child in the family. and not being able to share that with my family and my parents is really difficult because they supported me in so many ways and struggled with me. Um, it's, it's really unfortunate. And I'm, I'm hoping that there's just an opportunity once it's safe again, that we could do it. Olivia, your thoughts on this? I have a lot of very similar thoughts. Um, we also had our commencement um, postponed. Um, it was supposed to be like the second weekend in May. Yeah. And now it's rescheduled for like August 15th, 
but that just like at this moment in time seems so unrealistic that I've kind of just mm-hmm. stopped counting on that to happen and have just like accepted that like this is how it's going to end. Um, I was very fortunate that my faculty in the meteorology program really wanted to make us um, feel special and like make this as incredible of a moment as they could for us. Um, there's like 60 people in my program total. So there were 12 graduating seniors. So like, I know everybody, um, we all know each other. So our faculty did a online graduation for us, but like, it's not the same. Um, and so like Porva said, it's just hard because you feel bad that like you're sad about graduation because in the grand scheme of life, like it's not as big of a deal as it feels like it is right now. But still like I've wanted to be a meteorologist since I was eight and like this has been my dream and like it's happening and I don't get to celebrate that or like my family doesn't get to see me like walk across the stage at graduation so like definitely very sad and it's hard to like balance the sadness of like what we're losing and missing out on with like the sadness of like a hundred thousand people are dead in the country so it's like a very weird space to be existing in. Elizabeth it sounds like you took on the task a little bit even to try to translate for your peers what that meant for you or what kind of lessons they should take from that. Can you share any of your thoughts related to what Apurva and Livia have been talking about now? I think that it's really difficult to, I agree with what both of them have said, but it's really difficult to try and find that balance between knowing that this would have been something amazing that you would have been able to do and have that graduation and have a ceremony with all those people and feeling disappointment and almost regret that you can't do those things. And really, I'm trying to look at it from a way of just coming up with the best situation that I can. But I also think it's really hard when a lot of the pushback we had from when we switched to having a virtual graduation ended up being from the parents of students rather than the students themselves. So it was kind of difficult to go through that and see a lot of arguments and things spouting off across social media platforms like Facebook, where the par- a lot of parents are were angry about that, and rightfully so, but it was just difficult to see that where you feel like you should be the one that's having the say in that, and then a lot of people are taking that on as a different emotion, which is difficult to try and move through that. And I also think that it's been really hard to continue to follow the rules and social distance and continue to stay at home orders while you see so many people or at least for me I have a lot of classmates that are still out doing things and getting together and so it's really difficult to continue to do the right thing even when people are out there doing things that you want to do. turn to that in just a second. I want to remind people you're listening to COVID Calls and we are talking to the class of 2020 with Elizabeth Whiteside, Olivia Van Buskirk, and Apoorva Selvaraj. And um, I would just add, from my perspective, I'm a little bit older than the three of you, but um, there are only three times that my whole family uh, got together. And that was my high school graduation, not my college graduation, but my graduate school graduation and my wedding. Uh, and it, so it is, as you have all alluded to, it's not, it's not only an experience of you going through something important uh, and a public recognition of achievement and also 
um, your community, your peers, but also families take this like really super seriously, maybe too seriously sometimes, but <laughs> I can't blame them um, because um, they want to see you walk that walk that stage. So uh, I am not surprised that that hurt, the words you've used, some hurt, some anger, some um, confusion is there. I wonder, you know, the thing is we're in a moment right now where high schools and universities may be facing this, we hope not, next year, but they might be. And so we're in a really deep learning period as a society right now. I mean, you're sort of on the front end of it, um, helping us learn it. And I wanted to use that as a segue to ask you all, three of you are scientists. Uh, you're, you're moving into careers in science. Um, two of them are very closely related in one not as much, but all um, you all bring a scientific cast of mind. So what does this moment mean to you as aspiring scientists? What do you think is changing in America or in the world in the way we think about the role of science? Or if you'd like to speak more personally, how what does this mean to you as an aspiring scientist? Apurva, can I start with you? Yeah. Um, you know, I've... I've loved the healthcare industry. I've I wanted for a long time to be a health professional. I wanted to be a doctor, but I was really interested in technology um, and more interested, especially in my concentration, which is imaging and seeing how technology pushes medical advancement and knowledge. Um, and so being a health crisis, this has just even more apparent to me shown the discrepancies um, within the healthcare system and how challenging it is for access to patients um, and health professionals. And it, it's just bolstered me even more to really run with the focus of patients and health professionals um, in my work. I've, I think like the other, the other thing is there's so much information that gets out either too quickly or not well developed um, and that skews people's opinions so much. It's, I, I get really frustrated because I'll be like, where are you getting that from? What study is that from? Um, and people don't ask those questions. And it's so important, especially when we're flooded with information on a particular topic, what is, what is accurate? What is um, something that we should be listening to? And I think it's, question, I question people when they tell me things. Um, and I also question myself when I read them even more so now. Have you found yourself in that role in that in your household? Yeah, my parents um, yeah. take in information a lot. They are on the news all the time, um, and they give us updates in our family chat. And I'll be like, "So, but what is this article? What are they referencing to?" Because they'll have like a news article, but you know, there needs to be actual substance to where that the news article is getting its information from. So. Olivia, you described a situation when we started where maybe you and your parents even don't always see eye to eye on how data should be interpreted. Um, yeah. You're the scientist in the house. How does that go down? Um, we just disagree a lot. Um, I think in terms of like broader science communication, I think that this whole moment has shown me like I want to like pursue that kind of path and like understanding how meteorologists communicate. And so I think that there are lessons that are like being taken from this moment that we probably don't realize yet of like how people perceive information and like 
what they're like how they perceive truth and like who they view as truthful and so like that's kind of like where a lot of my disagreements come from with my parents like they will see things and it's like there's nothing to back that up like what are you talking about um so I think that has been something I've been thinking about a lot and also just like this broader link in like the weather and climate community to kind of like climate change and like how people think about like sources of scientific information and who they view as like trustworthy and truthful um and like who is willing to take action for like maybe the betterment of like a larger group of people outside of themselves um and I think that there is definitely overlap between like people who will social distance and wear masks and like also believe in like climate change and other like science issues like that um so that's what I've been thinking a lot about that connection is is an important one and we've seen um I think some good thinking about that obviously it's still early days but can you say a little bit more about how you see that that connection because there you're making an explicit connection between um climate science and pandemic which are supposed to be separate ends separate rooms in the scientific castle but you're bringing them together well I think first of all there's been work done that shows that like a warming climate is going to further exacerbate like the spread of disease and our capacity to deal with it in the first place. So I think that they're a lot more linked than people maybe perceive and realize. Um, but also just like in my own community and in my own experiences, there will be people like in my family who will like share posts on Facebook, like, oh, like wearing a mask isn't gonna help you. Like <laughs> the liberal like policymakers, whatever the media is like lying to you. And then like, they don't necessarily say it out loud, but I think it just comes down to like this belief in science. And as someone who's been trained to look at data and like draw conclusions and make decisions based on that, it's like very difficult for me to not see similarities between like, how can you not look at the data for like CO2 emissions and see like they're increasing and that our temperatures are increasing. And also like, I think that those people are kind of similarly, like how do you not look at like our trends with COVID and see what's going on? Um, so I guess I don't really know what drives that. I mean, there's probably a lot of factors, but I definitely think that those two things are interrelated. That, that challenge of uh, taking esoteric data and communicating it into clear public health instructions, uh, we've been seeing that literally unfold day by day, week by week, and as you all have said in different ways, state by state. I mean, literally the four of us are all living under four different rubrics right now of public health, and we're all in the United States. Elizabeth, same question to you. So you're gonna start your freshman year in college in what will still be the largest public health emergency in American history since 1918. And you're medical school bound. What does that mean to you? Um, I think that, so it's very, to me, a lot of this revolves around and is very specific to the university that I'm actually attending. So I'm going to Emory University in the fall and hopefully going to be able to live on campus in some sort of capacity. But the campus of the CDC is directly connected to Emory University's campus. And there's also a hospital right there all in the same vicinity that's connected with and affiliated with the university. And so there's a lot of this interconnection between the pandemic and the, like the center, the epicenter of the information that's going out about guidelines and rules and things like that. And then also right there with, there's a lot of 
research going on about vaccines and tests and studies going on on university campus with university facilities. So I think it would be very interesting to see how that plays out in the kind of decision that Emory makes for whether or not students can return to fall. And so with that, I'm expecting to see possibly a more conservative decision on how students actually will be able to go or if there's going to be anyone on campus rather than some of the schools that are opening up a little more widely just because that's what they want to do. And I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of us as students, we all want to go back, but that might not necessarily be the best decision in terms of public health. I, I hadn't quite put that together when I saw that you're going to Emory, that of course the CDC is, is literally mm -hmm. right there. I mean, you're going to be in the same zip code if it's the fall or it's the winter, you're going to be right where you're going to, they're going to still be dealing with a crisis, and then there's going to be forensics after to figure out what happened at CDC, particularly in January and February, um, as we moved into the as we moved into the pandemic. So, just staying with this for a second, because I would like to get, I'm getting a hopeful vibe, measured but hopeful from the three of you. But what's your reaction to people who say, you know, this has been a real defeat for science, that? Countries like the UK and the United States that have as much wealth as any country could ever wish for. And still we have these huge death tolls and we have a president who's gone on television telling people various things about using cleaning products to uh, address their health issues. I mean, there have been profoundly, just to me, distressing attacks on science in this moment. So I'd like to draw you out a little bit on that because you're moving into your profession or into more education as you move towards your profession at a moment when science is a battlefield in America. Olivia, could you start? Yeah, I think like, I think this is a hard question because I believe that science exists to address problems that like we, like you don't know what you're gonna get when you start doing science sometimes. Like you go into a problem um, unaware of like what the result might be like you have a hypothesis you think okay this might happen and you could get something completely and entirely different and I think that I view like the what comes next and like the future through a similar lens like we know what's going on now and we can predict what we think will be happening or you can try to like make a vaccine etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but like we don't actually know what's going to happen and like that's both scary but also I think kind of hopeful too, like maybe something good comes out of like something that people didn't necessarily expect. And like, I think we make advances through just like pursuing new ideas instead of like being kind of like boxed into like addressing a problem one way. And I think that science gives us the avenue to like be creative and solve problems and I don't know. I don't see it as like a downturn for science. I agree that there are definitely attacks on science and scientists' credibility, but I think that science is like the one of the biggest tools we have to come out of this in a in a different way. Robert, can I get your perspective on that? I mean, particularly this pandemic has been there's been a lot of discussion of biomedical devices and mm -hmm. test kits and now vaccines and everything. This is all stuff you've studied inside <laughs> out. Um, do you share the optimism that Olivia is bringing or do you have a, a perspective on this? 
Well, I, it's funny also because I think actually one of my classes that I have today <laughs> is it's almost like how can you solve for the pandemic kind of question. So we were working on mass sterilization units because of the mass shortages that were occurring and how that could um, be in a better turnaround tra- tra- turn time um, and support healthcare workers in like hotspot areas. But so, yeah, it's like it's very much like, you know, identifying a need and catering to that, I think. For me, though, what has been so evident is as much as science tries to like be in its own little circle and like you have your scientific community and research, it is so heavily influenced by policy and politics. And there's so much like polarizing views on on this and even more so the pandemic across many areas, but especially healthcare, has shown how had so many discrepancies in in the system like we've known about it with insurance we've known about it with access um but it's just so much more ev- evident to certain populations um and for me like something that i've always i've always been interested in um public policy and politics in general but especially as applied to healthcare and seeing its interconnection um, and really the need for scientists to be a part of the political realm more and more because you need that factual information, people who have studied in that manner to bring actual like evidence-based claims that most politicians without those backgrounds just don't bring or they're not soliciting that kind of information. And it's really frustrating. And so I think it just opens up more that, that discussion um, and the interconnectivity between politics. You were, you were underlining the importance of um, evidence as a basis in politics, which um, should not be an extreme point of view. Uh, although I, you know, in these in this moment, it's um, it it does seem like I suppose if you I, I share that perspective, and and I feel like um, in science education. So I'm, I'm trained as a historian of science. And, um, you know, it's just, there are various moments in the history of science in which um, scientific finding and the scientific communication are not equal talents. And the ability to demonstrate the, the interconnection of science to national need or to the needs of a company um, or to push against a widely held set of beliefs, this is not the first time that we've, We've seen that playing out, learning those lessons and being clear that the connection between science and I'll stop lecturing in a second. I'm sorry, I'm lecturing. I've missed lecturing. Um, But those connections are just really, really, really strong and important. Um, I mean, back to to you, Elizabeth, you were talking about some of the discussions playing out there, even about should we or shouldn't we have a, a graduation ceremony in person and back and forth on social media and people, some using the mask and not using the mask. Um, I mean, as you, as you prepare yourself for a career in medicine, what, what's your vantage point on that? I mean, do you need to spend more time? Do you need to take a a minor in political science? Do you think, I mean, how do you, how does a future scientist prepare herself for this kind of rough and tumble politics that we find ourselves in? I think that it's very important to do like what Apoorva was saying about having that evidence in politics. And I think that's something that's really lacking in what we have right now. And I feel like this situation should be taken as 
an opportunity to shift the way that we think in our society at the present and be able to use this as a way to highlight the fact that we do have that such disadvantages, communities are such disadvantaged with healthcare and so many other things to where we need to use this as a turning point in our history as a society and in the United States specifically to, we have to move forward and address some of those concerns in terms of healthcare and especially in terms of like emergency medicine, things like where we are right now with the pandemic, there's not really a system in place for this and because we've had like our president fired his pandemic team last or two years ago before this happened. And then we have a situation where we're coming in wildly unprepared and having such dissent within our government that there's not a place for us really to exist where there's science, where it's the strong basis and then politics and somewhere else. And there's such the clash between them. I want to ask you all three, I want to stay with a serious topic here. Um, there's been a lot of discussion, as you can imagine, in higher ed uh, and in secondary ed about online. Um, most of that discussion, unfortunately, has been uh, professors talking and administrators talking, and I haven't heard students enough. So I'd like to hear from each of you about that. It's kind of where we started our discussion today. But you know, we may very well be moving into, some believe that this is an inflection point and higher education is now gonna move to mostly online because of factors of cost, because of the need to democratize access to higher ed and because of the uncertainties of, of the pandemic. Others have said, no, we should, I mean, we, we've got the full spectrum here of viewpoints. I'd like to hear from you. Um, things that maybe have surprised you or opportunities that you see in this moment that we're learning from this really intense experiment with online learning. Or maybe you just hate it and want to go back to the way things were. What's your, what's your viewpoint here? Elizabeth, can I start with you about that? Um, I think that it would be a really poor move to try and run universities completely online or even high schools. I feel like by not having that in-person connection, you're really losing a lot of that, the like rigor and just connections within the classroom. And because a lot of my classes that I took from International Baccalaureate were centered around group discussions and seminars. And so having that connection with both my peers and teachers was really critical to my own learning. And so I think that by having that taken away and having to do completely online, it's just not the same. And so not only would it be hard to adjust and especially hard for students that don't have access to that and then taken away, have any access to education then, if we move completely online, I think it's just a struggle to both adjust and come to terms with whether or not this is actually a sustainable system or if this is something that's going to end up ruining or decreasing the level of education that we're even able to get from a system like this. Mm. Olivia, what are your thoughts on this? I have also very similar thoughts to that. Um, my mom is a preschool teacher and she's been a public school teacher for like 25, almost 30 years. So I have just like grown up in this environment of like school and community and the experience of being at school is so incredibly important. And like, I think by just assuming that we can automatically go to online school, administrators are maybe not realizing like how big of and experience like colleges and even high school like 
yeah, you can learn things from behind a computer, but for me, my college experience has been defined by like the moments and like the memories and like things that I've gotten to do with my faculty and like with my friends and like the people on campus. And you can't replicate that in a like organic way from behind a computer. Um, especially with issues of like access to internet and all of the different problems that come with um, online school. So I obviously like want to be back in person um, in the fall, but recognize like there are still significant public health challenges. But I don't think that this is a moment where we can just abandon everything that we've done with like school in the past. It's amazing to me sometimes, and I know you study disasters as well, Olivia, that people talk about disasters as if some brand new world we've never seen before will come out of it. You must be sort of, you know, experiencing that feeling a little bit right now. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I don't, like, our normal has changed, but I don't think that we can just assume that we're going to come out of this and, like, the world is going to be entirely different and, like, we fix like economic and social like and racial and all different kinds of like justice issues in America. Like there are still conversations that we need to be having um, and policies that need to be changed and like ways that we do things that are just like not equitable for everyone. And that doesn't just like go away when coronavirus goes away. Yeah, continuity is strong. Uh, Aperba, your thoughts on how higher education could learn from this moment. I presume you're not in favor of 100% online, but I don't know, maybe you'll surprise me. <laughs> no, I mean, there are some classes that I'm like, this is this is fine online, it's not amazing, but like I could get by. Um, so I think there are learning opportunities of things that could be like put online. For example, like, your 200 person lectures um that could be something that you read that you see before and come to actual recitation in drexel's terms recitation time and like actually ask questions and i found some of my classes record the lecture while it's going on and that online format really helps in reviewing the material so th there are benefits in that manner but there's so much as we like inequity also because learning environments for students are so different. The whole point of college especially is this kind of adulthood on training wheels to be taken out of the um, environments that you've been, come to a place where you're surrounded by people your age with ambition and um, learning how to motivate yourself and academically but still balance it with maybe research interests or um, social justice interests and then this your actual socialization with friends learning how to make connections with faculty and mm -hmm. professionals and like all of that just can't be replicated online any university also that is really taking great steps in having an interactive education know that they can't do that online um, and I mean especially like in again engineering degrees we're very hands-on in our learning um and we need that aspect and taking that away like well imagine like an engineer who has never worked on a circuit an electrical engineer that's never worked on a circuit board and then they go to a job like what are they supposed to do <laughs> so right. um the the in-person aspect i don't think universities are naive to that um but I, I do think there are some places that maybe an online format to bolster um memory and retention is beneficial mm. Interesting, just listening to the three of you talk, and as a professor myself, of course, I would never uh, undervalue the importance of the curriculum, 
and what's on the syllabus and, and those things. But I would share that, you know, um, the most important moments for me in my college career were in a great books class that I took over one year as an undergraduate. And it was what happened after that class every Friday for two hours where we all went out together and talked about what we had remembered. It didn't, I mean, it was this intense socialization yeah. with ambition, as you said, Perva. I mean, we were all intellectually ambitious, but it was not just what had happened in the classroom. It was those other things as well. Um, I'm not completely despondent that we can recreate some of those spaces online. I think we're going to have to over the summer and, and into the fall. But I'm I'm not sure how we can ever, as you I share with you three of you, have said, I'm not sure how we can, I'm not sure how we can materialize that online. So I want to remind people that um, you're listening to COVID calls with my guests Elizabeth Whiteside, Olivia Van Buskirk, and Apoorva Selvaraj, who have been talking about some of the issues. And graduating this spring. I have one last question as we wrap up. Usually the, the summer after a graduation involves a, a road trip, uh, a trip abroad, um, maybe some sort of an internship experience, something new, uh, a break with the old. So you will all three maybe be doing something like that, but not in the way you had anticipated. How have your summer plans changed? How are you going to cope this summer uh, with how things have changed. Elizabeth, could I, could I ask you to start with that? So my family was going to Italy in about a week and that very quickly was shut down early on in the pandemic because that was one of the major epicenters of it around starting in March. And flights have been canceled with that. And so we've had to push that back a year. And I was very excited to have that uh, as an opportunity to go and see all of those amazing artworks and really immerse myself in the culture there. And that would have been an amazing opportunity to have. And so it's upsetting to know that that had to be pushed back. But it's also, I'm very grateful for the fact that I have the opportunity to still go and do that, even though it's going to be a year later. I'm lucky in the fact that I didn't have anything lined up job-wise and being, I feel like being a high school student going into college, I have a lot more security than a lot of people I know graduating college and having to start a job or try to find a job in this situation. So I think I'm very lucky in the fact that I know that I'm going to college and know that I have a place that I'm going to be for some time. I just don't really know what that's going to look like. Mm -hmm. Olivia, to you. Um, yeah, I was supposed to go to Colorado for a couple of weeks with my roommates. Um, two, me and another one of them were graduating and one of them, one of them, she graduated in December. So we were all going to be going on an adventure to like go to the mountains and like go just relax and celebrate like graduating college. Um, obviously that is now not happening. Um, were you planning to go to Boulder to the these meteorology types are all the same. You were going to go to the end card. I know. I understand. I, I get it. I know. I, I don't a, know, you know, like Julie DeMuth and John Henderson, but yeah, cause they're great. That's why. But yeah, I, they're yeah. one of my mentors and like, I want to work at NCAR so bad. That's yeah, like, you will. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, but yes, like that's not happening. Um, I was supposed to be lifeguarding um, in addition to starting grad school work at a job that I've had since I was 14 and I love with like every single fiber of my being, like teaching little kids how to swim and like spending my days at the pool with my friends. Obviously our pools are closed, like that is now not happening. So it's kind of just like this very like slow moment, like mm. to, I don't have plans and I'm the kind of person who like 
my outlook calendar is full of plans. Mm-hmm. Um, so now like I don't have that and it's just been kind of like a very relaxing, I guess that's not the best word because like pandemic, but a moment to kind of like slow down a little bit. Mm-hmm. What to you? Yeah, um, I mean, especially like the end of year festivities that Drexel even plans for you, those are all gone. And I know like so many, so many of us had plans of like after June, after the graduation, spending time, final time with our peers um, and enjoying the city. So obviously cities closed down, commencement isn't happening. Um, but I personally was supposed to, my family and I were supposed to visit our family in India, um, most of our, like almost like 98% of our family lives there. And I haven't seen them since the last time I graduated from high school. Um, so it's been five years and that's really saddening because who knows when international travel really will be okay to commence again, um, as well as like traveling would have been a part of that. Uh, it's, it's weird. I'm fortunate um, because also post-grad economy isn't as alluring as it was, you know, just a few months ago. Um, but I am fortunate that I do have a job. Um, I've accepted a position for August. So I have a little time to be. Um, Can you tell us where? I'll actually. Or you I didn't can't. Intend, I didn't intend for this to happen, but I'll be back in Wisconsin. Um, so I'll be working at a healthcare IT company. Um, it's a it's a big one in out of Verona, Wisconsin, just outside Madison. But it controls about 75% of like those electronic patient records, hospital, like uh, software solutions. So mm-hmm. I'll be a project manager for them. That'll be exciting. Good. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID calls and COVID calls happens every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow I'll be talking to Tricia Wachtendorf, the director of the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware, and we'll be getting a public health update from epidemiologist Esther Chernak from Drexel University. And I just can't say enough about um, how much I've learned in this conversation and really want to thank my guests, Orva Selvaraj, Olivia Van Buskirk, and Elizabeth Whiteside for sharing your experiences in this time and also your, I think, um, the sense of reality that you brought about the gravity of this moment, but also the optimism that you brought. And I wish you all the very, very best. And thank you for making this hour for COVID calls. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.